Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I reconnect with David Pudwell. David is Mr. Regulatory, and we talk about PMA or pre-market approval. This is a FDA uh, regulatory pathway for class three products, or well, I guess generally speaking, class three products. But anyway, I hope you enjoy some of the details and information that David shares with us about PMA. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder, Agreen Light Guru, John Spear. PMAs, I, I was actually talking to a uh, colleague earlier today. We were talking about innovation and and that sort of thing. And we, we briefly talked about, you know, sort of the, the pros and cons and, and you know, briefly dabbled in uh, or discussed PMA. But the good news is joining me today is David Pudwell. David is uh, also known as Mr. Regulatory. Check him out, mrregulatory.com. But David, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Absolutely. The, and I guess I'll bring the, the discussion I was having with a colleague and uh, bounce it off you and get your insights. But yeah, you know, I've been in this industry long enough, and I suspect what I'm about to share is probably even relatively common point of view even today in 2021. But I, I remember a few, many years ago, we would work on a project, you know, we would figure out sort of that regulatory pathway and that sort of thing. And in the moment we would come back and say, it's class three PMA, you know, FDA, uh, you know, all the executives threw their hands up and they were like, ah, oh, kill it. We can't do that. So anyway, I guess. I think that's typical. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, why do you think that is? So I think I think some of it is just the the time frame, you know, in question, as well as the fact that just a, a lot of us in the you know in the industry, I'd say as as companies at, at least, if we were to try to take on a, you know a PMA product within our existing quality system, it would it would probably be um, chancy to say to, to 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 say the least. I mean, maybe you could speak a little bit a little bit more to that from the you know sort of the quality side of things. You know, and and in in discussions, you know, that have that, that have been had, you know, around this topic, you know, I've heard things even even floated uh, about, and and heard that people have done this where they've actually spun up an entirely new entity to manage, you know, a higher classification uh, a product to uh, sort of handle these these exact kinds of issues. So I think that that might be part of it is just the complications of how do we how do we manage that. But there's there there is there's a fear I think of what FDA is is going to what challenges FDA is going to present or there's the uncertainty about the clinical uh, study outcomes or whether this is really going to successfully meet the unmet need well enough to do well in the market. There just there's so many questions and challenges and regulatory is definitely a big piece of that in terms yeah. of what that higher classification does for you. Yeah, and that was sort of the the nature of the discussion that that I was having with my colleague is you know. Uh, especially for you know, if you're in an early stage company, I mean, you're you've got a finite amount of capital. Um, you know, you you want as best as you can some predictability or some at least some level of certainty. And you know, f- if there is such a thing in the regulatory world, I mean, five ten k is the is the most predictable. And I'm not trying to imply yeah. that it is predictable, but it's way more predictable than 
yeah. than de novo or, or PMA. So I, I suspect that that's probably some of the rationale there. Not the least of which, the capital that it's is required and the and the skill set and the knowledge and expertise and and the time uh, that it takes. You know, generally speaking, uh, a PMA is going to be more expensive and longer, longer to get the market right. Especially, and and some of this is, it's not necessarily a question of PMA versus not PMA for what the real time drivers are. It's definitely a consideration, but let's say that you had a de novo, let's say FDA was going to be willing to accept a product as a de novo, uh, sort of implied in that is that it would be a smaller study or a less long, uh, you know, study in terms of, you know, duration of follow-up and and all of these details potentially. But the the real driver is gonna is gonna be around the clinical questions and and the IDE study considerations, which are all interconnected with with device classification to some degree. But if you have to do the same study for a five ten k product versus a PMA product, the difference in time to market is uh, let's let's call it. I mean, it might be six months, it might be a year. Sort of worst case scenario if if things sort of go to plan. Um, you know, but but it, it could be it could be approximately the you know the same depending on how long it takes you to respond to you know to questions or if there are questions because for for um, you know for a PMA you've got you know you've got a review window it's long it's significantly longer than a five ten k but most of the things that are going to be uh, drivers for the time to when you can even submit your um, you know your device for FDA review are going to be in getting adequate clinical follow-up. And usually you need more than one year's uh, worth of data on a significant number of subjects to, to get to that point. Yeah. So, um, and I think know, they kind of get, that's an example or an element of what you were hinting at a moment ago, as far as, you know, companies being equipped from a, you know, quality system or just systems in general to be able to accommodate and manage the PMA process. That, that is an example, I think, where yep. a lot of companies don't necessarily have that skill set or those systems set up to be able to do that effectively. And, and there are a lot of interdependencies. And one of those is, is really... And I think that the key the key thing for me that's that's a concern when you're talking about uh, product classification is really around reimbursement and whether you have a, an existing reimbursement pathway or whether you're going to have to forge your own path because we, we've definitely seen situations you know in in the past where you come up with this novel product and you, you move forward with it. And we, we sort I've seen other people do this. And, and then you get to CMS and you present this to them and they give you a reimbursement pathway that kills your product because it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to net in terms of reimbursement sufficient, you know, a sufficiently high reimbursement to cover the cost of manufacturing and distributing that, that product. So, so that, that can also be a killer for a product that would otherwise be innovated. It can get on the market, um, even at, let's say, lower classifications. Uh, and that might be more typical at lower classifications because you already have a defined uh, reimburse, reimbursement usually already set up there. And uh, speaking of the topic of reimbursement, uh, I recently did an episode of the Global Medical Device podcast with Mike Drews where we actually talked about that very topic. So I would encourage folks to go listen to that. But you know, for, for the sake of this episode, let's dive into that a little bit further because you know, I, th- I think the, the layperson thinks doesn't think a lot about reimbursement. Yep. If they do, I think they think, oh, well, it's they're both part of, of HHS, and you know, uh, they, these these two branches of HHS, they're talking to each other. So, what do I need to do? I mean, but it's just not the case. Well, 
I would say it's improved, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's where the, the medical device industry would like to see it in terms of a collaboration between at least CMS and, and FDA. FDA is also open to engagement with other payers. Um, and so, and, and with payers directly, I mean, you, you could have, um, you could have, uh, you know, different kinds of entities come and, and meet with FDA to talk about broader issues. And, and FDA has gone out of their way to try to engage with, with certain large payers. And, and they're aware of this as an issue. But e- even with that awareness, I, you know, I don't know that the, that the landscape is, you know, is yet where, where it really needs to be. I've, I've heard when I was at FDA, I heard some venture capitalists that were invited into uh, sort of share with us that perspective so that we would have an appreciation of, of interactions with small startups, at least, and some of the challenges that they face. And it, it is something that, that FDA has gone out of their way to, to, to make the review staff aware of. It's yeah. also something where, as a review, as a member of the review staff when I was at FDA, being aware of that, it, it opened uh, the door a little bit for not that you would accept the lower bar of evidence, but that you would oftentimes move more, especially with a small startup and even with other companies, towards offering different avenues to resolve a question. Because at FDA, one of the key things is they, they don't necessarily have a good sense of how much things cost. So if they tell you, hey, we would suggest you go do this thing, which for us to review, let's say, if, if, if I was at FDA, would be easier for me there are maybe a couple other things that could be acceptable and you can go off and figure that out on your own, but sometimes helps for FDA to say, Hey, here are a couple options. We're open to you proposing something else. Just even saying that, that we're open to this, we're open to something else is enough to sometimes solicit that from a company. Whereas otherwise, if FDA suggests something, the company says, Oh, that's what we have to do. And (laughs) Oh, by the way, it's going to cost a small fortune. And there's this other thing that, would make more sense, we think, but we're not going to tell FDA that we should do this other thing that FDA might not even be aware of as a as an option to address their question. For sure. All right. So let's steer the ship back a little bit more towards <laughs> PMA sorts of things. I mean, it's all related, folks. But you know, one of the things that I think is is important is you know regulatory strategy, and this I, I think is. Yeah. The case, regardless of what the the pathway, you know, outcome is determined to be, but you know, if I have an eye, I mean, there's an, an advantage to me being a PMA from a product perspective because of uniqueness and evasive and things of that nature and things that I can claim. You know, of course, I need to have the evidence to support that. But as we've already hinted at, that could be a, a more costly, uh, a longer path to get there. So do you have any tips or pointers for companies that, yeah, that may have their, their eye on that PMA prize, but you know want to make sure they, they don't uh, run out of uh, cash <laughs> in time? Yeah, on, on the way. Well, you know, one, one of the considerations there too is uh, just, I'll, I'll get into that in just, just a second. It's, it's useful to think about this in terms of what the long-term benefit is of the regulatory strategy you pick and what options you have. Because within the PMA framework, you do, it, it does mean that if somebody is going to directly compete against you for that set of claims and this particular type of a product, it, they're going to have to show a similar level of evidence because of the way FDA typically is going to view things from a level playing field kind of a standpoint. And their expectations for what you would present sort of sets the stage for what other people would present. And that's true to, to, to some degree as well with, let's say, a de novo. So it's helpful to be the first 
through the gate, even for one of one of these kinds of a product uh, kinds of products where it's a class two device, but it's going to be still reasonably costly to get the de novo in. And then the next submitter is going to have a defined path and it's going to be an easier sort of journey for them to take to get a 510k found substantially equivalent to your de novo product versus if you follow the PMA path, now somebody else has to follow the PMA path uh, to, to, to get to where you are. Um, but you know, a typical strategy from, from just regulatory, from a regulatory standpoint is to try to figure out if you have a product, how can it be used in non-medical ways or in lower um, uh, classification you know, ri- of risk ways within you know, a medical context even? And, and a couple examples, one I would say, so physical uh, medicine uh, products, so exercise equipment effectively can fall into this category of a non-medical kind of a product. And depending on what kind of claims and how you're using this same kind of equipment, it can then fall into the category of a, of a regulated medical device. And, and then on the sort of higher uh, risk classification side of things, you, you have a really good example uh, in, in, in the area of biliary stents. So these are the same uh, design oftentimes for use in a, in a context where uh, it, it's for palliative care, um, it, it's, it's a lower risk kind of consideration, um, and, and FDA's standard in, in terms of the bar is, is set at a 510K level versus the exact same product used in a vascular context is a PMA uh, a product. So you might even have this exact same device that you're designing for a vascular application and say, oh, there's a way to actually generate some revenue as a biliary stent in palliative care with a different set of labeling, uh, which is restrictive because FDA is aware of the fact that it's, you have some products that are identical. And so they saw this growth in this area of biliary stents and they said, what's going on here? And, you know, come to find out there's, you know, maybe some, some people using products off label. So FDA has strictly labeled these products, but it gives you an avenue where if this technology can be used in a slightly different context, or if you're development journey in terms of the product, maybe you have an iteration of the product that can get to market in a slightly different context and you can start generating revenue, you know, with, with say a 510k or a non-medical device, you know, product on your way to something. It also maybe allows you to, to develop more information, do more robust testing and, and um, it, 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 depending on how you set it up, it could it could really help you out in your in your journey to let's say even a PMA product. Oh, for sure. I mean, and I think the biliary stent example is a classic. It reminds <laughs> me of a, a time in my past. I think <laughs> I, I think once upon a time there were probably more um, biliary stents cleared, five ten k cleared uh, stents on the market then there might've been biliary procedures. <laughs> yes. That, 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 that was definitely what put off <laughs> FDA and they, they had a, they had a come to Jesus meeting. I, maybe there's another way to frame that, but they, uh, they, FDA was not pleased. This predated my time at FDA, but, uh, I actually worked in the group, uh, yeah, this uh, that, was back uh, in early two thousands. Yeah, I mean yeah. the 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 stent race was was interesting, and that you know that's a whole topic for a different day anyway. But um, but nonetheless, I think the the point here is that 
uh, as you're exploring like your ultimate, you know, uh, you know, strategy from your product and from a regulatory perspective, there may be some branches or offshoots, if you will, along the way that will allow you to introduce your product with a, uh, you know, a 510k or a quote simpler regulatory submission that you know it may limit what you claim your product does for that clearance, but it might give you an opportunity to introduce introduce that product into the market and generate revenue and you might be able to help fund that future use case and and, and that PMA indications. I, I think I think it's smart, you know, for a lot of companies to do this. And to your point, I mean, there's lots of advantages of a PMA. I mean it's it's sort of the regulatory equivalent of of having uh, a patent, uh, so to speak. Uh, it's a little different, but but there's some some real intrinsic some values. Yeah, some protections for sure. So I guess maybe talk a little bit about you know getting into some of the the details and some of the logistics. But w- when technically does a product require a PMA from an from an FDA perspective? Yeah, so FDA has written a, a fair amount on this, and it, it's really going to come down to historical precedent. So um, it's not quite it depends, but it's one of those kinds of answers. Um, it depends on what was on the market in uh, you know the the, the pre amendments timeframe versus and and how FDA classified that, and and, and that goes back to the seventies. So you know it's it's sort of an interesting way of of, of viewing the world is uh, you, you know pick a date in time sometime in the seventies and Anything before that is pre-amendments and everything post that is, is you know, sort of new. And the original uh, way that FDA thought about, uh, or, or the, I should say Congress thought about this, was they, they intended for um, new products coming to market to be PMA products. And the, and the only reason that you would follow this like 510K pathway would be that you're making a minor change to an existing product. And they at the time sort of sort of expected things to move into this uh, you know pre 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 market uh, you know approval space but the 510k program evolved and the PMA program became something a little bit different and you got to this point where now we have this very robust active 510k program which was expected to be i think a sliver of 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 what was happening and the PMA program is you know maybe the size of what was expected to be the 510k program if you go all the way back, you know, to when the, um, you know, the medical device, yeah. uh, you know, amendments were written. Um, uh, can and, I, can I chime yeah. in on that for a moment? Yeah. Cause uh, just an interesting tidbit and, and I can probably, if I, if I think about it uh, long enough, it'll, I'll jog the memory. So, but I was at an event once where I was sitting or having lunch next to the guy who actually wrote the 510k provision. I think he said it was part of the, the Carter administration. Hmm. And it, he said it was only, it was always only a, a intended to be a temporary provision. And, you know, here we are, you know, many, many years later, almost my entire life later. Uh, and it's, you know, to your point, it's, it's, it's the more common route and, you know, yeah. way more so than, than some of the others. But anyway, I just, I, I thought that was an interesting tidbit is like, you know, it was never intended to be a long-term thing, but here we are. Well, as, as my, uh, as, as a former uh, civil servant and as my uh, uncle who was in, in government uh, in, in, in military for a number of years would, uh, would say there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. So, um, <laughs> you know, to bring a little levity to it. So uh, I, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that 510K is the, is the more robust, um, you, know, of the, uh, you know, of the pathways in terms of the number of submissions and all this. But, but, but that aside, I mean, so, so with PMAs, 
really the idea is that this is, you know, anything new. And um, what that means now is something different, let's say, in context than what it was, you know, originally. But it's, it's something like, you know, 30 to 40, you know, submissions on average, you know, a year, something in that, in, in that ballpark. Um, I should actually probably go look up the you know, current year figures. I should have had that on hand. But the idea here is that you don't fall into, you're not substantially equivalent. You're not similar enough to any product that's currently on the market, or you are similar to a product that is a PMA. So um, if there is a PMA product, and this is a common misconception, I think, amongst some people when they're just getting into regulatory is oh, well, there, there are PMA products. And then at some point, somebody submits a 510K to be substantially equivalent to a PMA. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Now, it's possible for PMAs to get down classified. It's possible for HDEs in the same kind of way to get down classified. And then you could have a, a, you know, a 510K found substantially equivalent to that category of, you know, of, of products. But once a PMA, unless it's down classified, it remains, it, you know, it's going to remain a PMA pathway for future devices that are coming to market. So that's, that's one thing to, you know, to keep in mind. And, and FDA writes uh, that PMA devices often involve new concepts, and many are not of a type marketed prior to the medical device amendments. Therefore, they do not have a classification regulation in the CFR, and that's where you're going to find your substantial equivalence comparisons to existing products. Um, in this case, the product classification database will only cite the device type name and product code. And so, you know, that's, that, that's going to be for your, 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 your PMA type uh, devices, these new concept, you know, think, think new. And it's going to vary a little bit from what you may consider new versus what from a regulatory precedent standpoint FDA is going to consider um, consider new, and and some of that could be a change in indications. So if you use the same device in a different context, like the biliary stent case, if you use the exact same product in a slightly different way, you can totally change the classification and how FDA views that product. All right, folks, I want to take a, a brief pause and remind you all. I'm talking with David Pudwell. Uh, David also goes by the moniker Mr. Regulatory. You can check out his website by going to mrregulatory.com, mrregulatory, all one word, no spaces, hyphens, or anything of that nature.com. David also has a um, growing library of content on YouTube, some really great videos about you know, some of the different uh, regulatory nuances, you know, from an FDA perspective, really good stuff. So go to YouTube, just search for Mr. Regulatory and subscribe to his channel. Uh, and, uh, you know, be sure you click the little notification thing so you get alerted <laughs> when the new stuff comes out. Um, but I also want to rem remind you too that, you know, Greenlight Guru, uh, we have the only medical device quality management system software uh, platform available today in the marketplace. Uh, it's designed specifically and exclusively for medical device companies, and it's been designed by actual medical device professionals. So whether you're pursuing a 510K, a de novo, or PMA, we have workflows within the Greenlight Guru medical device quality management system software to help you navigate that process. So if you'd like to learn more, go to www.greenlight.guru and we'd be happy to have a conversation with you to understand your needs, your requirements, your timelines, and hopefully we have some products and services that can help you out along the way. So David, let's get back into the, the conversation. Um, 
talk a little bit about uh, maybe timeline if if I do go down this PMA yeah. path and you know and maybe some typical or recommended steps that I might consider along that way. In terms of classification, you, you're really going to be looking at, at at risk for for the product, and you're going to be looking at the the, the 510k database for existing products that are out there. You're going to take a look at maybe if there are existing PMA products out there where the risks have already been defined. If you can't find a product like yours, then uh, you're, you're going to be pulling together uh, information consistent and, and, and you could potentially uh, you know, pull together a summary of safety and effectiveness uh, you know, uh, for, for the product. Let's say you could mock that up for, for, for where you're headed. FDA has a template that you can take a look at. You can look at what what some products on the market already have have pulled together in terms of uh, you know in terms of their, their their summaries of safety and effectiveness and the the idea is you can take a look at in this context post study based on real world evidence based on the the observed adverse events how the the, the product effectiveness in terms of meeting a, a you know defined you know medical a goal in terms of treatment of a, of a condition or, um, uh, you know, what, whatever the indication happens to be in terms of that, that effectiveness criteria, whether you, whether you meet that in comparison to, to, to the safety profile. And you can, you can get a pretty good sense, I'd say, even without hard evidence, uh, you know, a priori of, of about where your, where your product is going to fall. And some of that is, is the product implanted? And, and this is one of the things that FDA, you know, will bring up. I mean, it, it, it's some sort of high level, you know, considerations. What's the duration of use? I mean, if you're talking about a shorter duration of use product, you're probably talking about lower classification, not always, but, but probably. Is it going to be implanted? Is it intended to be implanted permanently? How long are we talking? Does the you know, um, does the product resorb? That might actually, you know, change the risk classification such that a product that, let's say, a biliary stent that's non-resorbable, you know, for um, for palliative use, if you make a device that's resorbable for non-palliative use, which is a really small, um, you know, con- you know, context for, let's say, non-vascular, you know, stents like that, where you, you you're you're treating some benign condition. Um, and maybe you want the stent to resorb. That might change your classification, and you know, in ways that you know actually upclassify the product. Um, even though the reason you've made that modification or you're trying to develop that kind of a product is to improve the you know the user outcomes. So you know, th- these are some of the things to be thinking about. Biocompatibility is always going to be um, you know an issue. Uh, human factors is becoming more and more uh, you know a consideration. What what um, What's happening in terms of either the you know clinician or the patient uh, and their interface with the device? Do they have uh, some user interface that they're manipulating? Is the product uh, uh, you know electrical? Is it passive? You know these these are all going to you know play into you know into your considerations. And um, don't you have some tools as, as part of the green light? Uh, uh, guru to um, you to to address some of these kinds of uh, things and and map some of that out. Uh, yeah, there there are some some workflows that can help navigate that process for sure. Um, I, I think the other thing that I'm I'm hearing is that as you're describing this, is PMA type of products. You know, they, they often represent 
more uncertainty um, as far as yeah. the path forward. Uh, and you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of a, a pre-sub for a lot of cases, but it seems to me that this is a no-brainer uh, opportunity for for a pre-sub. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it definitely in terms of you know how how you want to move forward with um, sort of a typical you know timeline. Let's say if if you think you've got a PMA. Uh, you know, style product, or, you know, even if you, if, if you're not sure, you know, definitely FDA has got a very robust Q submission or pre-submission program, uh, you know, set up and, um, you know, my, my advice in, in some of your previous uh, uh, podcasts has definitely been to, you know, to go ahead and avail yourself of that, um, of that process. And, um, you know, so, so first and foremost, get in front of FDA. And, and my, my advice to, to people would generally be to, to, to find an image, find something that is a visual cue that people can latch on to. You know, sometimes company names and logos change, you know, but if you can get a, a diagram somehow of either the product itself or how it's used or, um, you know, some kind of a workflow that you think is going to remain consistent throughout the life cycle of the product. I've seen some companies do that really well. It really helps the reviewer to, to, to key in sure. and um, you know, be able to sort of trigger them because they, 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 they might see 100 submissions you know, in, you know, in a year. And, and, and so the faster they're going to get back up to speed and if they were involved, remember, oh, this is that product, uh, you know, the better off you're going to be as, as, as a company because this process, as we discussed earlier, is going to take probably a couple of years between that initial, let's say, pre-submission interaction with FDA, some interactions probably within an investigational device, you know, exemption or IDE study. You know, I, I don't know, you know, I can't prejudge whether that's going to strictly be required. And again, that's one of the reasons you'd have a discussion with FDA Absolutely, is, you know, maybe you have an initial interaction with FDA as you're developing this and you're talking with them about your, your, your thinking and doing some pre- clinical kinds of assessments in advance of even thinking about an IDE study um, or whether you would need one, you know, doing some, some bench testing and animal testing on the product. And then maybe you interact with FDA again in another pre-submission before submitting, a, you know, an investigational device exemption study if you do one. And probably in a PMA, PMA context, you would. And then you're, you're going to get to a point where you end up with some kind of a pre-PMA meeting once you're, you know, the, the study results are looking like you can pull everything together into a, you know, into a PMA submission, uh, be careful about not unblinding your, uh, you know, your study and, um, you know, confounding your, your, your statistics, um, you know, I would say in terms of your interactions with FDA. But this is the, you know, the path you, you, you generally follow to get to the place of being able to then decide on whether you submit a PMA. And then, then you've got a couple options in front of you, which, which are, um, you've got a traditional PMA uh, format that I would say FDA would generally suggest. There's a modular uh, PMA uh, format, which you'd have to agree with FDA on how you're submitting different sections within the PMA. And that can sometimes help accelerate uh, review of at least certain um, sub parts of the of the PMA so that maybe there's less, less for FDA to review at the end. But FDA's experience with this is generally that the modular PMAs, there's, there's always going to be some set of modules that get rolled in to the, um, you know, to the, to, to that final module, you know, submission to FDA, 
where, you know, for whatever reason, either you were delayed in your submissions of the modules or you were ahead of schedule in terms of, um, you know, in terms of having everything finally prepared to then get into FDA. It's usually that some of the modules were delayed in my experience. And if I recall too, it, um, it's been a day or two since I've looked at the, the latest on this, but I, th- I don't, I, I don't think everything that's a PMA type product would necessarily qualify for the modular uh, PMA approach too. But do, do you happen to know? I mean, I can't remember. Uh, you're going to have to have an agreement with FDA yeah, okay. on, on that. And so, you know, there are some types of submissions that, um, uh, that FDA is going to um, d- dissuade you from, and I would say, based on what I what 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 my discussions have been with uh, with FDA uh, leadership in you know in recent history, they're they're generally going to you know going to be dissuading people from yeah. uh, from from doing modular uh, PMAs and and PDPs are something that used to be bigger. You might see a couple of them occasionally. Um, these product development process where you would have a uh, you know, pre pre set of uh, agreements with FDA on um, you know on this uh, you know whole pre market submission, but they they've, they've mostly fallen out of favor. I don't know that they they were ever a really big um, you know component of the of the PMA program in, in anything that I've seen. Though you'll occasionally see see a PDP um, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of some of the historical uh, you know PMA uh, applications that have been approved, um, and and with there's a lot of guidance around modular PMAs just to, just to jump, jump back to that. And um, there's what's called a shell that, that gets submitted. And that's sort of the high, the, the high level. And then you have these modules within and you have a planned time frame for when you submit. And so, so FDA can see, you know, as, as this is coming um, and FDA specifically says uh, this method is not appropriate when the applicant is very close to being ready to submit a PMA or when the device design is in a state of flux or likely to change. So that's going to be the key issue for you is if you're looking for more flexibility, which FDA has built into some other programs in terms of breakthrough devices and things like that. If you're looking for the ability to do device modifications as you progress, you're not going to want to do a modular PMA. For sure. I guess kind of thinking, you know, forward. So like I, I have, you know, this, uh, Submission and and a traditional. Let's just assume for for the moment it's a traditional PMA. I've I've com- concluded my IDE. I've got my you know results, my data. I've done my statistical analysis and all those sorts of things. Uh, I you know I get the audience with FDA. Um, you know part of that process, if if memory serves correct, too. You know there will be uh, an on-site inspection by by FDA um, typically for for PMA too, right? Yeah. So, so, and that, that's going to be sort of on, on, on the, on the back end, um, and, and that'll determine potentially, you know, how FDA, uh, or what FDA's final decision is on, on the PMA. So if, if you've got a, an approvable, you know, PMA and you're waiting for a, you know, final inspection, you know, another, another, you know, thing to consider is you, you might end up with a panel meeting, uh, that, that, you know, that's another one of the considerations. It, it depends on the PMA type. Um, or the device type, I should say, and whether FDA believes that they need expert input um, into the into their review process. Um, but oftentimes there will be a panel meeting, and that'll that'll increase the the duration as well of um, you know how how long FDA has to to review 
a device, which makes it more likely that you would have had an inspection, you know, sort of scheduled and, right. you know, and done. So it's, it's sort of one of these, you know, one of these mixed bags where, yes, the, the timeline is longer, but maybe you sort of get to the same place in the end, you know, in terms of, um, you know, getting all, all the dominoes lined up so that you can get your, get your product on the market. One of the uh, the other things I think is important um, to consider is the the user fees that are associated with uh, yeah, a PMA because you know they're not trivial. But maybe remind us all of, of what those are these days. And I, I yeah, don't so, I, order of magnitude's fine. I know sometimes that that, <laughs> that changes a little well, bit. And, and I'll tell that. you so. And 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 so some of this is going to be so. What we've been talking about so far is is the original. Um, you know the, the the original PMA uh, you know, app application, okay, and and so for a you know for a, for a panel track uh, supplement, let's say for a PMA, we're talking about two hundred and let's let's round up two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in in fiscal year twenty twenty one under the the Medufa user fee, uh, um, or I'm sorry, uh, that that's for the panel track supplement. For that, that's for a modification. For the original, it's it's three hundred and three hundred and sixty six thousand dollars. So you know, for for a PMA, a PDP, a, a modular PMA, a, you know, a, a BLA, you're, you're you're talking about you know north of you know three hundred and fifty you know three hundred and fifty thousand dollars just for the standard fee. Now, if you're a small business, um, then you know that's going to be lower. Um, by you know, by uh, uh, usually it's about half, if I recall, right? It's 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 significantly like it's 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 about a fourth. It's okay, about a fourth, fourth for the for for those fees actually. But um, so you, you're still talking about close to a hundred thousand dollars, even for the small business fees. Um, but um, and and yeah, then for supplements, I mean that's where that's where some of the money really gets you know gets involved. I guess I should say. So you've got the original. If it's your first you know, original PMA, um, those have been, um, uh, waived for, for the, for the first submission. Some of those fees in the past, um, I, I'm not seeing any, you know, specific guidance on, you know, on that. So, so don't hold me to it, but I know in the past for, uh, you know, for, for your first PMA, it was free, but you know, it's like, uh, it's like a dealer, you know, now, now all of your supplements <laughs> are, <right. laughs> are going to cost you, uh, you know, are going to cost you a small fortune. So, and, and, you know, and, then, and I guess just to clarify a supplement. So I, I've got this, yeah. I've received PMA, um, approval from FDA, uh, but now, whatever for whatever reason, uh, there's a need to make a change or an update to yeah. that. Uh, that's handled through another submission to the FDA called yeah. a PMA supplement. So this is where you know, not that they're out to get you, but this is where um, maybe that caveat is is important to specify. Yeah, and that that's the real difference in terms of I would say the classification where with a five ten k, if you make certain changes, yes, you're going to have to come in with a new five ten k. But we're talking about right now in in 2021, twelve thousand, thirteen, you know, thousand dollars for a new 510k. Uh, generally faster, you know, review time frame. It doesn't consider, uh, you know, manufacturing. For the PMA, if you're going to make a manufacturing change, you're now talking about, um, you know, thirty day, you know, thirty day notices. Now those are 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 somewhat cheaper. You know, you're still talking about six thousand dollars for a, you know, for a thirty-day notice, you know, for, for for a manufacturing change, 
and for your annual uh, report. So every year, it's also going to cost you 13000 and expect that cost to go up year over year. Um, so you, 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 get, you get some more regular costs to, uh, to, to maintain a higher classification product. But most of the costs of, of, of maintaining your product on the market probably isn't in the submission fees themselves. It's in everything else around it. It's in maintaining your system. It's in, um, you know, having the, you know, the staff on who knows what they're doing such that you can, you know, do the submissions and, and maintain all of this and do the testing. Um, but you know, the, the, the original, uh, fees and the panel track supplements, if you have a panel track supplement, it would be a more significant uh, device change. Um, those, those are going to cost you a bit more. So for the original, it's uh, like I said, you know, $366,000, uh, in uh, fiscal year 2021. And for uh, a panel track supplement, you're talking about, you know, 275,000. Uh, and, uh, and then for 180 day supplements, you're talking about 55,000. And for a real time supplement, which is a, um, a more narrow set of changes, um, you're still talking about, you know, 26, 26,000. So, significant like you know orders of magnitude higher in general than 510k costs just from yeah. a regulatory submission standpoint yeah and and i'll um throw in a uh, I, th- I think a plug here um this is one of the things that the fda case for quality initiative um i, I don't this wasn't their original um mission per se, but I think this is one of the things that was discovered uh, in some of the uh, previous years of the pilot program, case for quality pilot program, uh, was the regulatory um, landscape, I guess is probably a a nice way to say it, with respect to PMA products and and specifically things like supplements and things like that. So I know that the case for quality initiative has been very focused on on identifying opportunities to remove some of the obstacles and, and barriers and burdens to that process in this in the spirit of ensuring that products are getting the improvements that they need to improve their quality and safety and effectiveness and that sort of thing so you know for for folks that might be in the space uh, i would encourage you to to explore that case for quality program because you know there's some really you know as far as regulatory is concerned i think uh uh, innovative, if I can use such a word, uh, um, talking about regulatory, some innovative approaches uh, that being a part of that case for quality initiative might afford you that that might not be an option for you otherwise. But I guess, David, to kind of put a wrapper on today's conversation on PMA, uh, what and, and that's, uh, a, that's a 10-year anniversary, by the way, coming up later this year on that. Case I know it's quality, hard to believe so. that's been around that long, but it's it yeah. Um, but to kind of put a wrapper on on the PMA conversation today, you know, any key uh, tips, pointers, takeaways that you think are really important for folks? Yeah, the, the the key thing again is really to be thinking with the with the end in mind of where of where you want to get to. Um, you know, definitely there are opportunities to um, you know to get products uh, developed in a way where where maybe there's a different context of use that you can get you know, some experience with that technology or with the product earlier on in a, in a slightly different, you know, use setting, whether that's a, a different medical device, uh, a type or classification, or whether that's a non-medical device application. And, and then the other, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, there, there are a couple, uh, there are a couple good videos, you know, that, that, you know, that are out there um, just, just on my channel talking about 
uh, PMAs. If you if you do have the pleasure of putting together a PMA, um, uh, you know I, I, I walk through the filing reviews and the uh, you know the the acceptance reviews for for five ten Ks. So just what all to make sure that is included so that your your PMA application would be accepted. And um, you know also talk a little bit about supplements during COVID. So for anybody affected you know, in, in, in this, uh, you know, period of the pandemic, uh, FDA's put out some, uh, some guidance around that as well, uh, earlier last year. And, um, you know, one, um, you know, one last thing is, uh, uh, there, there's a little walkthrough I, you know, I did as well for, for one particular uh, PMA product, and it gives a, a good overview of how to look at, uh, PMA information that that's already there in the database. And, um, what to be looking at for approval orders and summary of safety and effectiveness and labeling and some clinical trial and post-approval study information, that kind of thing. So I, I've got a couple videos out there. Other people have good resources. There's a lot of really great content on the FDA website um, to, to, to help walk you through the process. And, um, you know, it's never too early to make sure that you have a robust quality system in place is, is going to be my last, uh, my last shout out for, uh, for all the good work that you guys are doing over there. <laughs> well, I appreciate the segue folks. We'll, we'll curate, uh, some of those links that, that David mentioned and, and include those with the show notes. Uh, but, uh, absolutely, uh, quality system, you know, if, uh, regardless of, of, frankly, of your device pathway, whether you're class one, two, three, you know, FDA, EU, Canada, you're going to need a quality management system to articulate and describe how you do business and how you've digested those important medical device regulations that are applicable to your business into your day-to-day operations. And we've got you covered. Uh, this is what we do for a living at Greenlight Guru. We provide companies with a platform. Uh, we have other products and services that can help you uh, establish that quality management system. So, I encourage you, if, if you're interested in learning more about how we might be able to help, go to www.greenlight.guru. And again, we'd be happy to have a conversation, understand your needs, your your markets, your pathways, and and all those sorts of things. We've got a team of gurus and, and experts ready to help you out in addition to our platform. As always, I want to thank my guest, uh, David Pudwell, Mr. Regulatory. David, thank you so much for the insights on PMA. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. And as always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.